Two Tribes is a two-part documentary series for RTE looking at the history of Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil and their roots in the Irish Civil War and how an intense rivalry gave way eventually to a coalition government. Now we bring you extended interviews with participants in the series. Broadcaster Sean Dignan was born into a Fianna Fáil family and observed politics from both sides as correspondent and government press secretary. Sean Dignan, thank you so much for taking part in this documentary series. You're somebody who was born into a family that was intensely political, I think it's true to say, with its roots going back to the Civil War times. Yeah, my father uh, fought in the War of Independence and the Civil War on the losing side. And um, he spent far too much time on the run out in the open in all kinds of weather. He died young. And I always remember my mother many years later saying to me, what do you think your father, what was the main attraction to your father of this house? He was talking about the family home. I don't know. She pointed upwards. She said, the roof. I said, the roof. The roof, she said. It kept the rain off him. I said, he said she said, you, you, do you think he was exaggerating? No, she said. These boys, they never settled. They had, they were living wild and they were wild. And then he became involved in, in Fianna Foyle. That's right. How did that come about? Well, he was a Republican. He had uh, fought uh, on the uh, Republican side. And then when Deb started up the party, he got involved. It was interesting, however, that <laughs> at one stage, my father felt that Fianna Foyle weren't Republican enough. And he decided with this wonderful party, Clannapublic, that there were real Republicans. And he thought that he should go and join them. But he was kind of lucky that he didn't. As my mother laughed afterwards, she said, he couldn't believe it. <laughs> He'd hesitated. He couldn't believe it that when Clannapublic went in to power with the old blue shirt Finnegalers, he was a lucky man, she said. He, he was very, very happy that he had never joined Clannapublicta. And how did he come to stand then as a, as, as a TD or in the, in the general election? I can't remember. I think he was a, uh, just a, a working member of the party, but he was popular. He, was a, he liked to sing and he was a, loved to be in bars and he had a good personality. So suddenly they said, why don't I try it? And he was elected and he was elected um, top of the poll in Galway West. The problem was that he was suffering from cancer as he was elected. And um, he never got a chance to run again. I knew it broke his heart when he had to say, I won't run again because he was already dying. And um, so he only got the one, one, one stint in, in the doyle. Were you ever tempted yourself or was the opportunity put in front of you? I was never tempted myself. I was the wrong age when he died. I was just 18. Um, uh, they, they, I, even if I wanted to, and I wasn't interested, I just wasn't interested in politics, um, uh, it wouldn't have worked. I was far too young. Our, our theme, obviously, is Civil War politics in, in making this documentary, Sean. Um, what does that phrase mean to you? Civil War politics. Well, I do remember that um, my, my father never talked about it, but um, he, 
afterwards, I think, regretted, very much regretted having been involved in the Civil War. He was uh, slow to talk about it. And the strange thing is that when he went into Doyle Aaron, it turned out that most of his friends in the house were on the Fine Gael side. You made your career in journalism as opposed to politics, but there was very much political uh, dimension. That was what your whole li working life was about. So when you came to work in Dublin in the was it mid early to mid sixties, there would have been a lot of people around still active in politics who had whose roots went back to the Civil War. That's right. In those days, it was very the media didn't didn't very often interact with them. They, it, it, it wasn't encouraged. They were the journalists back in those days were supposed to know their place, as it were, not be bothering these people. And that's one of the reasons that so many of them went without recording their remember remembrances. Did you, want, did you yourself interview many or any of those Civil War veterans? De Valera, for instance. Well, I, <laughs> De Valera, uh, as a cub reporter in the mid-50s, a junior in the Connacht Tribune in Galway, I, <laughs> one of the seniors brought me up to Air Square to see Damon De Valera uh, addressing a Fianna Fáil election rally. <laughs> and uh, apart altogether from being fascinated by the, it's a strange, almost hypnotic monotone, the way he talked, what I was really interested in was the reaction of the crowd to him and uh, how they just stared at De Valeria as if he was some kind of demigod who had amazingly uh, materialised in their midst. And you would have come across others as well. I mean, people like Ernon de Blythe, for instance. So. Well, I came across Dan Breen, and I was fascinated by that. Dan Breen was, at the time, um, I'd organised an interview with him. He was in a nursing home outside Dublin. He wasn't well, he was actually on his deathbed, but, uh, and he was going uh, blind. It turned out that he had been excommunicated after the Civil War, excommunicated by the Catholic Church. He was one of the fellows who didn't go back to Mother Church. However, trapped in that bed, many of the Republican women uh, would start coming in and waving rosary beads at him, trying to get him to come back to Mother Church. I arrived in and um, I stood at, at the door of the ward. He was in a ward and um, <laughs> he peered up towards me and the nurse came back and said, sorry, he won't see you. I said, but he'd agreed, no, sorry. So I was going disconsolately down the corridor and she clattered after me and said, come back, he thought you were somebody else. Now I did a long interview with Dan Breen. I can't remember a word of it. I'm sure he told me about all the people he'd shot. What I do remember is the first thing he said to me, he said, sit down and mock it. I'm sorry, I thought you were that fucking old bitch, Margaret Pierce. <laughs> <laughs> Sister of the great patriot, exactly. Porrick Pierce. Um, you did have an encounter, did you, by, by chance, uh, with Aaron on the Blyde in RT at one stage? Oh, yeah, I remember that. De Blyde was a strange one. He came in to do an interview. And for some reason or another, the name of Kevin O'Higgins, the Free State Minister, came up. And he said to me, you know, O'Higgins is always blamed for the execution of the 77 Republicans and uh, of his own best man at his wedding and all of that, that he was absolutely ruthless. 
I was the one who had to hold and force him to sign those debt warrants. He didn't want to do it. I always remember that from Deblyde. A hard man in... Oh, a very tough northerner. Um, and, and he would have been part of that Commonwealth uh, government that established the state. Um, how, how did you observe the kind of interaction such as it might have been? I know you said your father's friends, or he had friends in the Dáil who were on the other side. He, but he would have been rare in that. I mean, like, were, in, the, in the 60s and 70s, um, and we heard from Morris Manning as well, like, people kept their distance, would it be true to say? Well, my mother brought me into the Dáil when I was very young, my father being in the Dáil. And I remember from the public gallery looking down, and there I could see the civil war, uh, hatred almost, that was still there. I remember watching McEntee and McGilligan battling one another with venom almost. Uh, that, by the time I turned up in the Doyle as a, a journalist, that was all pretty well gone. All right, there was a lot of combative stuff, but none of that kind of thing I witnessed as a very young lad. Back, it must have been in the late 40s, early 50s. T tell me about your mother's involvement in politics and indeed the War of Independence and what followed. My mother was uh, from uh, an Irish parliamentary party background. She just happened to marry this rather wild Republican lad. Uh, she got to know, however, a lot of the Republican women, like Mary McSweeney and Markovich and Maud Gahan and all of that. I asked her, what, what were they like? She said, well, John, she said, they were the equivalent of the girls who nowadays sit on the pillions of motorbikes with their arms tight around the boy's waist and their mouth right up to his ear, screaming, faster, faster. They drove the men mad, she said. <laughs> was that said by her in admiration or astonishment or what was, what was her sense of them? I think she felt that they, uh, they were, they provoked the men almost to go at one another. During the treaty debates, it emerged that all of the Republican women went anti the treaty, all of them. And that's why I think my mother was fascinated by them. They were hardliners. The women were the hardliners. And as she said, they drove the men mad. When you came to cover politics on a full-time basis for RTE, did you have any difficulty being accepted by the, or were, they, were you seen or distrusted by people on the, on the Fine Gael side because of your own family roots? Although I eventually went and worked as a government president for Albert Reynolds, it turned out that not once, as far as I know, did anybody from the Fine Gael hierarchy object to me when I came back uh, to RT working again as a political correspondent. I think that was fa wonderful. What about the leaders you would have observed? I mean, people like Lamas and Lynch, what are your recollections of them? Well, I, Lamas, I didn't have a great deal of experience in dealing with Lamas, but uh, Lynch, yes. Lynch was very tough. He looked very quiet and almost, you know, modest and all that. He was a very, very tough guy. Um, that's not surprising. The man who won so many All-Irelands uh, in hurling and football for Cork was no easy mark. Um, Jack Lynch and Garrett Fitzgerald, 
Again, they exuded a kind of an almost uh, innocent quality. They were just as tough as people like uh, Charlie High. And of course, Jack Lynch had to deal with the outbreak of the Troubles, as they're referred to, uh, in Northern Ireland in, in the late 60s. That's right. I mean, um, there were very powerful people within the party at the time. Charlie Haughey, uh, Neil Blaney, Kevin Boland. They, in many ways, people in the party, many of them felt that, look, Jack Lynch is just a temporary T-shirt. These are the real power. But he showed his mettle when it came down to the arms running and the pressure on him to become involved in Northern Ireland uh, to help out the uh, the nationalist population there. He stood up to them and eventually, it was a rough battle, eventually he triumphed. They... And then he went out of power. Liam Cosgrave came in as Taoiseach, uh, Liam T. Cosgrave, son of... W.T. Cosgrave, what was he like in office? Uh, I got to know him, strangely enough, much better when he was out of office. I, I, um, I, I enjoyed meeting him and uh, he was very interesting. He, he was a tough man. He, he talked once to me about the fact that uh, 77 of the Republicans were executed. And I said, well, how do you feel about that? He said, well, one of our deputies was murdered and, um, yes, we did execute 77. The thing is, he said, no, after that, no more of our deputies were murdered. Simple as that. And this was the reflection of a man in his later years. In his later years, yeah. Um, Jack Lynch had a really big victory in the 1977 election, I think a 20-seat majority, which not many people few saw coming, particularly the political correspondents. Very much so. Sitting on the Doyle Gallery, uh, uh, the press gallery, uh, watching 84 Fianna Fáil TDs flood into the chamber. 84, they couldn't be accommodated on the government benches. Many of them sat on the steps of the stairs leading down into the chamber. Others... Uh, tumbled over, in, would you believe, into the opposition benches. Fianna Fáil that day seemed to be unbeatable. What we didn't realise it was that it was the high watermark of Fianna Fáil electoral power. Uh, from then on, there was a slow decline. Um, all right, Bertie Hearn did for a time arrest that decline, but then it resumed and eventually it was Michal Martin who had to see what was left had to preside over what was left of that 84, a mere 20 Fianna Fáil TDs. You described in very graphic terms that Fianna Fáil landslide in 1977. Obviously, Fine Gael then found themselves on the floor and they turned to Garrett Fitzgerald to try and rescue the party. That's right, Garrett Fitzgerald. And then Garrett was confronted with one Charles J. Hoy. Charles J. Hoy, the, the they measured up to one another. Charles J. Hawhey portrayed as the bad guy, as P.J. Mara called him, El Diablo. John Healy calling uh, Garrett, uh, Garrett the Good. And the extraordinary thing is that Hawhey did rather well against, against Garrett. I mean, they, 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 they went in and out alternately of power, losing an election, winning an election. 
And then Hockey was being challenged. Three great heaves against him within the party. Um, Des O'Malley, others. Each time it looked as if he was going to lose, but each time he survived. Uh, it, I, I, I think most of the journalists at the time thought he was going to die, but he was some survivor. However, at the end of the day, he went down, as the man said, all political lives end in failure. What about that rivalry, though, that intense rivalry, particularly over Northern Ireland, through the, the mid-'80s between Fitzgerald and Hawhey? Um, and I suppose it was at its most intense in the lead-up to the Anglo-Irish Agreement. Garrett had a completely different view of the North than Charlie. Charlie was aggressive. Uh, all right, he wasn't, uh, he, he didn't particularly feel there was going to be any militant intervention in the North, but he did get involved with the uh, importation of arms, which he denied, and uh, um, eventually that worked very much against him. I remember John Kelly of Fine Gael saying to me once, if Charlie had told the truth about that and said that he had, uh, got involved in the importation of arms in order to protect the nationalists of the North. I don't think it would have done him any harm, said John Kelly. I think he would have actually, uh, uh, it would have actually done him good. The fact that he denied it, he said, haunted him for the rest of his life. It haunted his career. He should have fessed up and said, I was involved in order to help the people, the, the oppressed people of the North. How big an asset was Hawhey's baggage uh, from the arms crisis forward? How big an asset was it to Fine Gael when it came to just the whole question of negative campaigning? Well, I do know this, that Martin Manzer said to me afterwards, the fact that Charlie had this Republican image, uh, he carried, as Manzer said, too much baggage, uh, too much Republican baggage. Albert Reynolds, who succeeded him, wasn't even supposed to be interested in the North. And that made it easier for Albert Reynolds to make, uh, to, to start up Northern initiatives. Charlie was constrained by his green reputation. And when Garrett Fitzgerald had that diplomatic triumph it's been described as in getting Margaret Thatcher to agree to give the Irish government a formal input into how Northern Ireland was governed. Hawhey cut loose on it and he saw it as basically selling the pass on the Irish constitution uh, and so forth. I think it was a mistake for Charlie Hawhey to oppose the Anglo-Irish agreement. Um, afterwards, in fact, when he came into power, he actually realised that himself and implemented it went about implementing the, the very thing that he had fought against when Garrett uh, achieved it. Tell me about your time working as government press secretary to Albert Reynolds, who succeeded High. The first uh, day I arrived as government press secretary, uh, first thing I found was uh, I was told, here's the new cabinet uh, uh, that uh, Albert has. But then I was forced to contemplate the, the remains the wreckage of the cabinet he had inherited from Charlie. Uh, he had just fired um, uh, 17 of them, eight seniors, nine juniors, most of them household names. Jerry Collins, Michael O'Kennedy, Mary O'Rourke, Rory O'Hanlon, Ray Burke, uh, 
uh, Dermot Ahern, and they were fired each separately, one at a time. All of them, the 17, fired within less than 15 minutes. It was already being described as the Great Chainsaw Massacre, and I remember thinking at the time, what have I walked myself into? How did Reynolds do as Taoiseach? It was a fairly short period, but Northern Ireland was his priority. Northern Ireland and the economy. Uh, most people felt that uh, he wouldn't know anything. In fact, he was ridiculed in, in some parts of the media about Northern Ireland. Uh, sure, Albert is a dance hall guy, uh, a pet food man. He wouldn't understand. But Albert straight off, uh, he called um, Bart Cronin and myself in, said, I'm fixing to make contact with the Shinners. Now, back then, that was almost incomprehensible. These people were untouchables. I remember saying to him, look, if you, if you, go down, if you do that, the knives are going to be out for you from every direction. You've seen what uh, they've been trying to do to John Hume when he went down that road. He said, OK, I know, but it's got to be done. And he reasoned that the talks process, which had been going on for years, was just not getting anywhere. And he felt, he said to me, I think I can persuade the provost to, that there's something better than the armed struggle. I think I can persuade them to lay down their arms. And he added, and I couldn't believe this, he said, I think I can persuade them that uh, United Ireland, the only way you can have it is by consent. I said, that doesn't sound like the provost to me. He said, but I think they're ready to do a deal. And it turned out he was right. And what about his, his, his attention or his capacity to understand detail, maybe in negotiating the Downing Street Declaration with John Major? Because he was often derided as being the one-page man. Yes, he, he was derided as being the one-page man. That's politics. You pick on something, uh, because Albert had once said, look, if you want to get my attention, if you've got an, uh, um, a proposal that you want to put me, don't give me a big pile of material on it. Put it all on one page. Then, if I see that I'm interested in that, I'll ask you for more, but initially, one page. And um, that's how he approached... Uh, for example, uh, the, uh, the Downing Street Declaration. Albert told me when he had written, when they had agreed on the D D Downing Street that he could quote from me, he said, every line, every paragraph, every full stop, and every comma of that. That was the one page, so-called one-page man. Albert was not... Uh, but then again, he, he, that, that, that's fair enough. It's all fair in, in love and politics. That was what they threw at him. He inherited a coalition arrangement which was unprecedented where Fianna Fáil was concerned. They had gone in with their sworn enemies, uh, the Progressive Democrats. That was something that Hawhey had negotiated. Well, Albert said uh, it'll be a temporary little arrangement with the Progressive Democrats. He had problems... Uh, Des O'Malley and himself um, just simply didn't get on. And uh, that led to uh, the collapse of the Fianna Fáil PD government. Um, and then he survived to start up a government with the Labour Party once again. He and Dick Spring had their difficulties, and that 
led to the collapse of that particular administration. So what does that tell us about Albert Reynolds as somebody, you know, as head of government? I mean, did, did he blow it or how do you view all the, of those events? He was a man who was a bit of a gambler. If he got a, a, an idea in his head, he was prepared to go with it, even when it was dangerous. At times I said to him, look, that, that, could, cause, that could cause massive trouble. But he said, no, he, would, he was stubborn in that way. And um, that's why every now and again there were bad mistakes, bad um, outcomes of uh, his kind of personality defects, if you like. So the PD Fianna Fáil government came apart. That was as a result of the, the evidence Albert Reynolds gave about Des O'Malley in the Beef Tribunal, suggesting O'Malley was dishonest. And then there was an election, 1992, and there were, the numbers didn't add up any longer for Fianna Fáil and the PDs. It looked like he was heading for the exit. Well, the 92 election, uh, from the word go, um, the opinion polls confirmed that uh, Fianna Fáil were going to have a bad election. Uh, in fact, that they were going to lose seats. You know, when that kind of thing happens, uh, when the, there's a bad smell off the election campaign, uh, an awful lot of your supporters, many even many of your big beasts, start to look out for themselves. They start to disappear into the the side the the the, the side edges. They uh, as Albert went around the country in that particular election, a lot of them weren't uh, putting their shoulders to the wheel. That's what happens when there's a bad smell. They victory, as uh, the man said, has a hundred fathers' defeat. Is an orphan. So when he looked at the figures, uh, Fianna Fáil had fallen back. Uh, Labour, it was the spring tide, as it was called. Um, and Dick Spring had gone into that election saying the most uh, excoriating things about Fianna Fáil and, and Reynolds. So how did he manage to work his way into doing a deal with Dick Spring? Dick Spring, on the eve of the 92 election, made one of the most lacerating anti-Fianna Foyle speeches I've ever heard in the House. He, he pledged that he would have nothing whatsoever to do with Fianna Foyle afterwards. Within a week after the election, he was uh, bargaining to form an administration with Albert Reynolds. Now, Albert had managed in, at Edinburgh at an EU summit to get a, a roughly eight billion of uh, European funds. That helped a bit. Also, he had a brief chat with Dick Spring about what was going on with the provisional IRA, that they might be about to be attracted to end the, the war. And I think that was what uh, Dick Spring, who was iffy about Albert, always was, that's what finally persuaded him, persuaded him to go in with him. In terms of putting a deal together, though, I mean, one of the things that happened was that the, the surprise on the part of the Labour uh, Party at how quickly Fianna Fáil put forward um, their own response to the Labour ideas. As we were heading for Edinburgh for the EU summit, Albert had Martin Manzer make First of all, 
look again at what the, the Labour programme for government was and then send them a message that practically everything they wanted in that programme for government, Fianna Fáil, were prepared to grant. Uh, that, was, uh, that had a huge effect on most of the Labour Party uh, TDs that Fianna Fáil, and he kept saying to them, look, in this new arrangement, it's going to be completely different. It's going to be a partnership. You're not going to be the, 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 the second party. We're, we're going to have Labour and Fianna Fáil on, almost on the one, on the one um, level. Uh, and um, although Dick Spring oh, didn't really want it to, and a lot of his advisors were against it, the majority said, let's go with Albert. Were there any red lines in the formation of that government? Albert kept saying that it was going to be the best government of all. But Dick felt that Albert wasn't looking after him. There was an awful lot of media criticism, remember, of Labour having gone in with Fianna Fáil, particularly given what Spring had promised uh, before the election, that he wouldn't touch them with a 40-foot pole, as it were. So he was touchy. Uh, Dick Spring was touchy. And Albert, of course, was a kind of a guy who, uh, you know, just pressed ahead and uh, perhaps didn't take this um, sensitivity on, on, on Spring's part seriously enough. And gradually, the Labour people, particularly those of them who never had wanted to be in with Fianna Fáil in the first place, were beginning to dominate. There were some major rows developed uh, Albert kept saying, why are they having these rows in public? The reason they were in public was the Labour were wanting, wanted the public to know that they were standing up for their rights and they weren't, weren't going to take any of this stuff from Fianna Foyle. And eventually, it just got out of hand. The Beef Tribunal caused the breakdown of the uh, PD Fianna Foyle government, oh, Albert and O'Malley. Right. And then it caused a lot of trouble uh, between Spring and the Labour people and Albert and Fianna Fáil when the report came out. That's right. What happened when the report came out? Well, the first thing that happened was um, Desi O'Malley, although in government, Albert Reynolds started to insist that Albert had been too favourable with the allocation of export um, credit insurance uh, to Larry Goodman, to the Larry Goodman Beef Empire. Albert retorted that oh, this was meant that Dick was, or that um, uh, he was being dishonest, that Desi was being dishonest. Now, uh, whatever about in other circumstances, the word dishonest in politics is verboten. And when Albert refused to retract that word, understandably, Des said, that's the end of it. He pulls the rug, and that was the end of the Fianna Fáil. Uh, Administ uh, PD administration. Then, at the end, came the tribunal report. And it actually worked out rather well for Albert Reynolds. The tribunal said, yeah, some of Albert Reynolds' decisions are, are questionable, but uh, all of these decisions uh, were not made for what they called improper motives. The following day in the uh, Irish Times, an editorial, after some humming and hawing, um, conceded, OK, Reynolds is entitled to claim that his personal integrity 
has been validated. Now, if we thought that was the end of it, we were wrong because most of that editorial concentrated on what Albert had done the night before. He had refused to let Dick see the report before he issued his vindication claim. And that, uh, we thought maybe that was, the, the, that, that, that was peripheral, but it became the main story. The actual tribunal verdict was put aside and all of the media started to concentrate on this issue. The fact that uh, Albert Reynolds insisted on putting out his validation claim before allowing Dick Spring to see it was, uh, was, was a mistake. Looking back on it, Labour were absolutely furious. And the media took up on that so much. Uh, it was an unforced error, an own goal on our part, um, and it obscured the fact that Albert had done well out of the, uh, out of the uh, tribunal report. There were other events, for instance, the nomination of Harry Whelan as uh, president of the High Court. For the life of me, I can never still understand why Albert Reynolds and uh, Dick Spring fought so long and so bitterly over Harry Whelan becoming president of uh, the High Court. It went on and on. And finally, it looked as if Albert Reynolds had won because most of the, uh, the, the Labour backbenchers went to Dick and said, this has got to stop. It's going to result in a general election. Um, we can't have that. But then, out of the blue, came uh, the uh, case of the paedophile priest, Brendan Smith, which blew up in Albert's face. Why did that, that happen? Because um, the Smith case was alleged to have been badly mishandled by Harry's office. He was still the Attorney General. And that reflected on Albert. Why did that? Because Albert had been so supportive of Harry against Spring. Then, as details of the depredations of this horrible paedophile priest came out, more and more it, uh, it started to come down heavily on Albert. Labour, who already had their problems with Albert, then decided it was time that they could start pulling the rug. And that's what they did. Uh, the government collapsed. He tried to retrieve the situation, firstly by calling on Harry Whelan to resign. Um, and it looked for a time as though it had almost been put back together again. There were many attempts by people, not just in Fianna Fáil, but within the Labour Party itself, to settle it. But each time, the, some new aspect of the row over the paedophile priest in particular started to come out. And every time they got a form of words that seemed to be acceptable, suddenly Labour came back and said, no, no, we want more. More and more Labour demanded that Albert apologise to them. It wasn't enough to say he regretted it. We want an apology. Uh, it went on and on, and eventually Albert said, Yes, I, I, I'll do whatever is necessary to survive. But even when he did apologise, Labour said, not enough. Th there were desperate attempts to keep that government together, as you say, and uh, advice coming from many sources, including 
the, the former minister and colleague of Albert Parry Flynn on the line from Brussels. Yes, um, as it became clearer and clearer that Labour were demanding that Albert um, apologise for having uh, backed Harry for so long, more and more uh, Albert sought a way out of it. And Parik Flynn, P. Flynn, his great pal from, uh, from Brussels, sent his message. What was Albert to do? Eat crow, he says, until feathers come out whole. Albert proceeded to do that, but it still didn't work. The government still collapsed. How did he take the end? I mean, when it became inevitable that the game was up, the game was over, and he had lost this prized possession of the office of Taoiseach at a time when he was making history after the ceasefire and so forth, literally within a very short few months of having delivered the ceasefire, it all disintegrated. It was uh, very difficult for Albert. He had uh, uh, managed to get the peace in Northern Ireland just a few months earlier. And suddenly he was being confronted with this. He felt that, uh, he said to me at one stage, I've been led to my execution. He said, Labour don't want uh, a settlement. Each time he tried to settle, each time he tried to uh, apologise as it were to Labour over it, they said it's not enough. Eventually, he, uh, he was forced to resign. You get over the big hurdles, he said, it's the little ones that trip you up. Just want to ask you one last question. Charlie Hawhey got back into power uh, with the support of some independence, or the acquiescence anyway. He had a minority government from 1987 onwards, and that lasted just two years. The 89 election, it was uh, when Charlie gambled that he was going to get, win an overall majority, but blew up in his face. The Doyle couldn't elect a Taoiseach. It couldn't elect a government. It was a hung Doyle. Everybody accepted, all the politicians, all the political pundits. There was nothing for it but another election. And the story goes, coming back from Brussels at the time was Barry Desmond of Labour. Comes back goes up to his party headquarters, they say, you're here for the new election. No, he said, let's have a look at the old election just, we just had. Let's have another look at the figures, he said. They said, there you are. He looked at them and he didn't take much time. He just said, well, there's your government. If you're going to in the PDs. Come on, Barry. Des O'Malley and Charlie Hawley, who hates one another, he said, I'm only telling you what the figures say, lads. The figures say Fianna Foyle and the PDs and... So it came to pass. Charlie High and Des O'Malley agreed that what was really important was power. And they decided simply to bury the hatchet and to go into a power administration together. How big a surprise was that to you as an observer, a veteran observer at that stage? Well, I was surprised. I had accepted the conventional wisdom that there was no nothing for it but another election, that there was a hung door. I was just as surprised. But Barry Desmond spotted it. Maybe the others spotted it as well, that they didn't have to have an election. All right, it looked as if Fianna Fáil and the PDs would never agree, but when it came right down to it, they, they certainly did. Was it an equally large swallow for Hawhey and O'Malley, or was it a bigger one, bigger swallow or harder swallow for one or other of them? 
it's strange to me that, um, you know, Des O'Malley, who's supposed to be one of the most morally correct people in Irish politics, that he, you could be, say, cynically, said, look, I may have my difficulties with Charlie High, but uh, at the end of the day, it's all about power. And um, I'm going to bury the hatchet with him, and I'm going to go in and form a, a, a power-sharing administration with my old enemy. So what do you make of the fact that now we see the two larger enemies Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil in coalition together? Well, I think back, uh, given this Fianna Fáil, um, Fine Gael administration now, to my father, his sadness about being involved in the civil war, how it should never have happened. I wonder what he would have thought now. I think he would have approved of Fianna Fáil and the Fine Gael lads coming together. I think they're forming a good government. And I would say that um, I wouldn't write off the possibility that they will go together, more or less, as a combine, combination to contest the next election. Do you mean by that, do you mean separate parties looking for re-election as a government? I think that they will campaign separately and say that they're uh, going to face into that election uh, on, on, as separate parties. But they'll also get it across, I think, that they'll be quite happy at the end of the day to, uh, if at the end, when the votes are all counted, to continue on with the present administration. Could you see an eventual merger between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael? Well, unfortunately for Fianna Fáil, they're so weak now, that if they get any weaker, then it, there could be a merger. That said, despite the fact that Fianna Fáil have come so low, um, it's not beyond the bounds of possibility that Michal Martin could begin to reverse the decline of Fianna Fáil. But I'll say this, even if he does that, it's going to be a long, hard slog back for Fianna Fáil. And to finish, an election is due in three years' time. It's a long way away, an eternity as we know. Uh, as of now, it looks like Sinn Féin could be the largest single party. How do you view the prospects, or could you, could you envisage circumstances in which either Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael would coalesce with, with Sinn Féin? We have seen many strange partnerships in Irish politics, going back to the arch-republicans of Clan Public, to going in with the old blue shirts of Fine Gael, Charlie Hay and Des O'Malley, enemies doing the same, Ian Paisley, Martin McGuinness, I remember Dick Spring on the eve of the 92 election, swearing that he would have nothing to do with Fianna Fáil within a week, uh, going back in with them. Uh, going in with them to form an administration. They're saying now, oh, the main parties, we won't have anything to do with Sinn Féin. Perhaps that's true. But uh, I wouldn't be too surprised if, at the end of the day, uh, that actually did happen. As someone once said, the politicians can argue back and forth on the eve of an election about what they're prepared to do, who they're prepared to go in with, and who they're not with. Argue and argue. Someone once said, at the end of the day, when it's all over, the best argument is a majority.